John 2, beginning at verse 13, through the end of the chapter. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found those in the temple who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then the disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. If it really upset the Savior, it's worth us paying attention. Clearly, anything Jesus said or anything that he did is worthy of our note and certainly worthy of our paying attention to. But when you find the Lord becoming agitated to the point where he makes a whip out of cords and begins to drive people out in what seems like his anger, albeit a righteous anger, folks had better wake us up and cause us to pay special attention. You see, the Jewish males of that day were required three times a year to come to the temple to offer sacrifices. As it was recorded there in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and even into Deuteronomy, it is that there were three pilgrim feasts, and the feast of the Passover, which we find in our context, beginning verse 13, was one of those feasts. And here's the thinking of the day. Well, we've got all these Jewish males that are coming to offer sacrifices, Let's take advantage of the law of supply and demand. Because we know that they're going to have to offer these, these bullocks and some uh, uh, turtle doves and some other kind of animals in order to make atonement here to, over the Passover. And here's what we can do. We can set up shop maybe just in this one little corner of the temple. And for those people that maybe came from a long way, or maybe their sacrifice died along the way, or maybe they just thought, hey, I'll get one when I get there, let's have the, these animals there for their, uh, for, their, uh, for their use whenever we get to, whenever they get to the temple to come and offer. 
And some others thought, well, let's make a deal, a side deal with the priests, and let's tell the priest, all right, let's not accept these offerings if they bring them on their own. So you're now looking for a last-minute offering in order to make atonement on, on behalf or whatever it is that you're coming, whether it's a peace offering, a transgression offering, or whatever it is. Let's have a side deal where the priest rejects that offering and they have to come buy one of ours. You know what's better? Is if we say for those offerings that people want to buy there in the temple complex... Let's do this. Let's say we only accept Jewish shekels. Any kind of Roman currency, let's not accept that. Let's just accept Jewish shekels because, after all, it's the temple. And after all, here are these people here who are Jews, and, and we want to make sure that they're proud of their Judaism. And so let's just accept shekels, and here's what we'll do. We'll charge something on the exchange rate, a little extra, so it is that we can line our pockets and so these people can use the Jewish shekels to buy the animals or the sacrifices that the priests are not going to reject. And let's establish this trade business and let's make this the standard operating procedure for offering sacrifices here at the temple. Would it surprise us to know that what upset Jesus more than anything else was characterized as business as usual to the Jews? Business as usual, especially within the house, the temple of God. What really upset the Savior about this was here's God's command. The man draw near to him in a very special sense in worship. And here's man taking and taking advantage of the situation to take advantage of their brethren within worship context. How sad. And what really upset Jesus, what drove him to make those whip out accords and to begin to drive out all the animals and, and to overturn the money changers. And you look around at this, at this mess and here's one man standing there with a the whip of cords. And he was able to see and he dealt with what maybe had gone on for years. Scholars don't really know when this practice began to have this uh, kind of marketplace set up within the temple. But it seems like it had gone on for quite some time because to the Jews, it was, it was normal. It was business as usual. And brothers and sisters, I can't help but wonder and make the spiritual application for us today and begin to ask myself the question, what things do I have going on within me? What ways do I behave every single day that are standard operating procedures with me that the Lord might look at my life and say, that not, ought not to be the case. I wonder how many, th how many statements and how many things go on within the church collectively that the Lord looks at and says, that ought not be the case. This doesn't need to be going on within the temple of God. And I can draw these applications because 1 Corinthians talks about the temple of God being not only individual, but also collective. Individual, that is, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that's individual. The Holy Spirit, it dwells in me. I am the temple of God, just like you are if you're bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus. And yet at the same time, 1 Corinthians also talks about the temple of God being collective. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 17, For if any man defiles the temple of God, him will God destroy. Uh, uh, for the temple of God is holy. Which temple, if Paul was an East Texan, which temple y'all are? He's talking collectively about the church. And I wonder sometimes about us as the church. 
about how we view sin and how we view the things that go on business as usual in our lives, how the sins we tolerate, the things that all together may be unacceptable to God, that Jesus wants to come in and clean house, the things that he would be most upset about your life and my life and about the life of his people as we dwell with him, as he dwells with us. Brothers and sisters, please don't miss this point. The church that Jesus Christ paid his blood for, the church that Jesus Christ died for, demands purity of life. It demands purity of life. Be holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8. In a score of other passages, it emphasizes the fact that not only in the collective, that is the church together, our lives need to be pure and holy and something that glorifies God, but as the individual, my life needs to be pure and holy, and it needs to be something that glorifies God. And so we ask the question, if Jesus came into the church at Graber Road, if Jesus came into my heart on a personal basis, what things would make him really upset? What types of things would he notice and say, this ought not be the case? What things would Jesus want to get a whip and drive out of our lives? Notes five principles from this text that Alan read for us just a few moments ago, and the lesson will be yours. Number one, brothers and sisters, we have to realize that Jesus recognized the sin that others refused to see. That others didn't see, that others wouldn't see, that others refused to see. <laughs> you ever notice somebody or you ever know somebody that fails to clean their house? Please understand, I'm not looking anybody in the eye and I'm not, this is not a blanket condemnation. But here's the thing. I'm amazed at shows, I'm amazed that we have shows like Hoarders. You ever seen this show? Where it is that people live among mountain places and piles of stuff and a lot of times garbage and they're walking around their house or they're crawling around their house as the case may be and there may be rooms that they haven't seen in their house for years because they just turned a blind eye to it. I was in preaching school. I lived with uh, two younger men than I was. I was about uh, uh, 29, 30 at the time and, and I, I lived with these two guys and, and they were both 18, 19 years old and there was a lot that I learned about myself and a lot I learned about patience from living with these two guys. But one of the things was is that there's a pile of dishes within the sink and the pile is growing taller and taller and taller to the point where we're eating cereal out of our hands because there's no more clean dishes. And I would come in from school from 8 o'clock to 4 o'clock studying the Bible and, and come into this, this house and, and look in the kitchen. And I see all these dishes and I'm thinking, you know what? <laughs> Not today. <laughs> Go in my room and close the door and I just turn a blind eye to it, you know? Because sometimes that's easier than actually dealing with the problem. I've lost maybe four or five hours of study time if it is that I choose to load them all in the dishes. And I know it's just going to get this bad again. So what's the point, right? I tried doing laundry once and it just kept coming back. And so I stopped doing it. That's not true. <laughs> you can come smell me after it's over, right? And see that that's not the case. Business as usual. And how it is that we let spiritual messes pile up in our lives sometimes. We let things go on and it's just easier sometimes, isn't it, to turn a blind eye to it than actually deal with it. 
We come, can you imagine the average Jew becoming so accustomed to coming into the temple and seeing these Jewish merchants or these uh, money changers in the temple doing business? And there was maybe not even a thought in their mind that there was something that needed to be done about it. But in John chapter 2 and verse 14, the Bible says that Jesus came into the temple and he found this. And he found is very, very indicative because what everybody else saw as normal, what everybody else saw as, as, as belonging there, Jesus saw and said, this is completely out of place. Brothers and sisters, can I tell you something? That we miss an opportunity to see sin the way that it is when we fail to realize how Jesus feels about the sins in our lives. I read a book years ago called Respectable Sins. And it was a book talking about the fact that we would not tolerate the sin of immorality or anything else like that. All these big sins, murder, we wouldn't tolerate those things, but we've established our own kind of acceptable sins, right? It's not a lie anymore. It's kind of a, uh, uh, I misspoke. It's not a lie, you know, I just, I just, I told a little white lie. We try and minimize these sins to a point where they don't seem like such a big deal. And yet when we look at Jesus and we see that the business as usual type of sin that was going on there in the temple of God was what made him so upset. Folks, it ought to give us pause to realize there are some things that you and I need to look again at and examine ourselves in Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5 and realize that those things that we have accepted as normal within our lives, the Lord may look at and say that has no place in your life. As a person who's trying to live, patterning his life after the holiness of God and after the purity of the church, that ought not be the case. Look at sin and see it for what it is. What I realized from this passage, second principle, is that Jesus resolved to deal with the sin that others wouldn't deal with. Jesus resolved to deal with the sin that others wouldn't. Jesus righteous anger, and his zeal for the purity of God's house motivated him to do what he did. It wasn't that he was trying to make a big show out of driving these people out and showing people that he was Messiah. His goal and his motivation was the purity of God's house. And his goal and his motivation was that people could draw near to God the way that they ought to without things that were altogether improper altogether sinful that were going on at the same time. And so it was that he made this rope out of cords and he used it. He drove out that which is impure. And can you imagine what a sight that must have been? How it was that Jesus interrupted Black Friday shopping. Can you imagine somebody going into a Walmart and driving people out on Black Friday? Can you imagine the overturned tables, and the, the carnage of what was going on and, and the quietness after all that was taking place. Now there's no more sound of bleeding animals. Now there's no more si sound of, of these men that are, that are talking about exchange rates. There's no more sound of these men that are, that are, that are trying to sell somebody, upsell somebody on a, on, a, on a cow. But now there's just quiet and looking around and surveying and seeing that there was one man standing there alone, and he did this. Brothers and sisters, it's not just a matter of seeing what's out of place. It's a matter of having the resolve and the moral fortitude to do something about it. 
You know, Paul went into Athens in Acts chapter 17. And Paul walked around the city, and as one of the popular historians of that day said, you would more often meet with a god than you would with a man in the city of Athens. The city of Athens was given over to idolatry, so much so that you could just walk down the road and say, there's an idol, there's an idol, there's an idol, oh, there's a man, there's an idol, there's an idol, there's an idol. And Paul saw all of that, and he realized it was out of place because these people weren't worshiping the true God. But the Bible says that Paul's spirit was provoked within him. Paul was motivated to do something, to change, to make that change that needed to be there. And it is that we look at our lives, and when we're confronted with a sin, what should our attitude be? What is my attitude? That's a question of examination, but what should my attitude be? Paul would say in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, Abhor that which is evil, cling to that which is good. That is, shun that which is evil. Stay away from it. Keep it away from you because you know that that's not going to keep you being holy. That's not going to aid in your purpose that I want to be like Jesus. I want to have that purity of heart and so I've got to remove this thing from my life. There's a resolve that the sin that goes on so often and the toleration we have for the things that go on in our lives personally and certainly collectively within the church, folks, they don't have any business being there. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4 says, Beloved, be diligent. That is, make every effort to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And my girls like to play the game hot potato, right? And they've got this little, well, it's not a potato, but it's a little plastic thing, right? Hot potato, hot potato, who's got the hot potato? And what's the goal? The goal is I don't want this. <laughs> and so every time it comes to me, as fast as I can, I'm going to shove it to the, to the girl to, the le to my left or to my right. I'm not going to keep this thing with me. But I wonder sometimes about the things that come into our lives and the practices and the thoughts and the habits that we have developed. Okay, I'll take that and hold on to it for a little while. Well, James says, listen, when we're tempted, that temptation, that sin has a goal to ensnare, to entrap me. And it is that which I willingly take and willingly hold on to in my life. Those things are going to shape my course and my destiny and my personality and my character. It's going to affect my holiness. I don't want that. I want to keep it out of my life. Sin is not something that we can be cavalier, that we can be casual about and expect it not to have an effect in our life. James would say, listen, lament, mourn, weep. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And you read the urgency there of James chapter 4. James says, get those things away from you. Stop laughing about sin. Stop playing with sin. And remove sin from your life. Would Jesus counsel me to do that with something in my own life this morning? Would Jesus caution me about a practice or about a habit that I have? Jesus says, I want you to live a pure and holy life, strengthened each and every day. There's the recognition of the sin and having a resolve to deal with it. Number three, Jesus reminded them about Scripture, about God's will. Jesus reminded them of Scripture, about God's will. There was a disconnect there between what God's will was versus what they wanted to do or what it was that they thought was permissible. Usual business, I find in my own life, is concerned with me and my, and us and our. Me and my, and I. 
is really what happens whenever usual business comes in. Because when I find something that I don't necessarily want to practice about the Word of God, I don't want to practice being patient with somebody. Well, what does that mean? That means that I can behave as meanly and as rudely as I absolutely want to be. Well, what if I don't want to become a servant in my own home? Well, I'm going to sit on my couch and I'm going to watch my TV while somebody else is doing my job for me. It becomes with myself. I begin to puff myself up with pride and realize that, you know what? The word of God may not be important or that's the way I treat it. Usual business is concerned with me and mine. That's an hour and not the God of Israel. Good Bible study for you to do would be to go and look and see how many times or places in Scripture where God's will took a second place to man's will. What God wanted more than anything else took a second place to somebody who had their own selfish desires and selfish interests at heart. It is significant that Jesus quoted this Scripture to them. If you want to write a cross-reference, Luke 19, verse 46, when Jesus cleansed the, time, the temple a second time, it is that he talked about, uh, he quoted from the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 7, verse 8 through 11. It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. It's a feeling that I can come to God and sacrifice to God and never really worry about how I conduct myself outside of the worship setting. And I can live my life and I can conduct myself as unholy as I want to be and then come and offer to God, well, what he's commanded. And so the idea is I can be living my life, defrauding my neighbor, lying, stealing, extorting like these men were. And yet whenever it comes into worship, well, I'm bringing this sacrifice, this offering just the way God has said. Which does God want? Does God want the sacrifice or does he want the purity of life and purity of heart? The answer is yes. He wants the sacrifice. Yes, he wants you to live the life that he want, he's called you to live. And we cannot divorce the two. We can't treat it like it's not important. And Jesus quoted Jeremiah 7, verse 11 here in John chapter 2. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, I, even I, have seen it. And Jesus knew that cleansing, if there was to last, had to have the word of God behind it. It had to have the word of God behind it. Brothers and sisters, when I take something out of my life, and I take it out of my life because I realize that it may not be helpful to me, Okay, that may be, there may be a measure of wisdom with that. But when I take something out of my life because that's what God has told me to remove from my life, that's got the force of the word of God behind it. It's now not something that's just going to make me a better husband or a better father or a better Christian, but it's something that is based upon what God has told me about who it is that I'm supposed to be following after Christ Jesus. You see the difference? I remove a sinful habit. I'm not going to say those words anymore. I'm not going to use my tongue for that. I'm not going to look at that on the internet anymore because I believe that's going to qualitatively make my life better. That may be the case. Versus the fact that God has said, let no corrupt speech proceed out of your mouth. Ephesians chapter 4. Be careful with your eyes. I've made a covenant with my eyes that I may not look on a young woman to lust after her. Job 31 and 1. I see. I'm going to make those changes because that's what God wants for his house. That's what God wants for his temple. It has the force of the word of God behind it. Our purity must be based upon concern for and respect for what God has said. It says down in the context, disciples remember in Psalm 69 verse 9, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Zeal for your house has consumed me. 
It's interesting to me that zeal, that is that fire for what's right. That zeal that God wants is never divorced from knowledge. Romans, 12, uh, Romans 10, verses 1 and 2, talks about the fact that there were some Jews who were zealous for what God wanted, but their zeal was working without knowledge. Well, which does God want? Does God want a heart of passion and a heart of, uh, of strength and a heart of encouragement, or does he want a heart of knowledge? And the answer is yes. God wants us to base the changes that we make, the positive things in our lives based upon his word, and based upon the attitude towards that. Understand this. Jesus remained in the temple. Jesus remained in the temple. There are actually two accounts of Jesus cleansing the temple. The first one is here recorded in John chapter 2. The second is recorded by the first three gospel account authors in Matthew 21, Mark 11, and Luke 19. And what it says in those gospel accounts is that Jesus had to do this two times. That's remarkable in and of itself. But his singular character, if it is that there were merchants at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry, and it doesn't record anywhere in, in between his ministry, but if that was the case that every year they came back, you can rest assured that based upon the character of Jesus, he cleansed the temple every year. The second time he did this that we have recorded was just before his crucifixion. Mark 11 says he drove out the merchants and he would not allow anyone to carry their wares through the temple. Can you imagine this scene now? Here's the overturned tables. Here's the money on the floor. And as I say that, I look down and I see a quarter sitting right there in the middle of the, <laughs> the aisle. If you lost a quarter, there it is, right? That's not has nothing to do with the sermon, but I just think about that. Can you think about this scene? Now it is. Here's people bringing their sacrifices in. They can't come into the temple anymore and buy those sacrifices. They can't come in anymore and change their money. They can't come in anymore and be told, well, listen, you need to go buy from uh, Joe's, uh, Joe's acceptable sacrifice shop. But it is that they came in, and as Jesus stands there in the, in the door of the temple, he's letting people pass, and he's telling others, you're not bringing that in here. You're not bringing that back in here. I'm sorry. And as we think about our lives and our hearts, brothers and sisters, what stands at the door of the temple of our heart? What stands at the door of the temple of my life? What is the filter by which I'm going to take something in or leave something out? What is it that's going to make a difference? And the answer ought to be for a Christian, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ standing there as the ultimate filter of what it is that I'm going to allow into my life and into my heart, or I'm not going to allow into my life and my heart. Paul would talk about it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5. Bringing every thought into captivity under the obedience of Christ. Here's the thing. There are some thoughts that pop into my head. There are some things that I think about, and it ought to be immediately that I say I don't want to think about that. And I don't want to go there. Here's the picture of 2 Corinthians 10. Here's Jesus Christ sitting on the throne of my heart. And here it is that I've rounded up these rogue thoughts, these rogue uh, impressions, these rogue uh, ideas. And I'm bringing them at spear point to Jesus Christ. And saying, Lord, I found this roaming in my mind, in my heart. And Lord, I recognize that I don't have any right to have this roaming free in my mind and my heart. For a Christian, 
Brothers and sisters, there ought to be some things on TV that we turn off. For a Christian, there ought to be some people and some places that we don't go and we don't associate with. For Christians, there ought to be some things that we absolutely don't say and some things that we need to say. But what is the ultimate filter? It can't be, well, I'm just going to tell it like it is. It has to be the filter of Jesus Christ. And so the things that I take in, because I want to keep the temple of God holy, pure, lovely, because I want to keep it as a place that's special for God, I've got to say, you know what? I'm not going to think about that. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to speak that way. I'm not going to betray that person like that. I'm not going to look at that. I'm not going to talk about that. I'm not going to treat this like that. And as Jesus Christ stands at the door of my heart, as Jesus Christ is the ultimate judge of the purity of who it is that I am and what it is I'm trying to be, I've got to respect his lordship in my life. Last one. Jesus' reaction made an impression on others. John chapter 2, notice the reaction of these disciples. John 2 verse 17, the disciples remember this scripture. They remembered after Jesus rose from the dead, zeal for your houses, eat me up. They recognized what it was that, that motivated the Savior to make this whip of cords and drive out these money changers and, and cleanse this temple and clean it up. You know what? The gospel accounts tell us, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they tell us that he remained in the temple. And as he remained in the temple, there became to him sick people and lame people. And it was that he was able to put the master's touch on them and he was able to heal them. There were children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. He gave others an opportunity to glorify God based upon the fact that he was in the temple and the temple was being used for what God had originally intended it to be. Brothers and sisters, when my life is no different than the people in the world, when the things that capture my attention are no different than what captures the world, you can expect that there's not going to be anybody that's drawn to Christ. Jesus would say, if I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Light doesn't shine well out of a temple that's not holy the way that it ought to be. Light does not shine out of a life that tolerates sin and things that go on business as usual. But when we are what we ought to be, when we become a clean vessel for the master's use, Brothers and sisters, there's going to be people that will look up and pay attention because it's unusual. It's unusual. Years ago, I was in Ukraine, and I had had uh, some problems with black mold in the place where we were staying. And so I went to, uh, with one of my Russian guides to a place that was uh, a doctor. He was just a doctor. He had a little shed outside in, in his backyard. And, and I remember going in there and seeing that he had uh, his own, well, never mind. I'll tell you about that later if you're interested. Here's this guy, and we had to get on the bus. We had to travel about two or three hours. And I'm there with my uh, Russian guide, and we're just sitting. We're having a pleasant conversation. And as we're there on the bus and we're talking, this man across the aisle taps my Russian friend on the shoulder and begins to speak with him in Russian. And after a little while, he, he just visits with him, visits with him, visits with him. And after a while, I said, what, what's that all about? He said, 
This man said, you guys are different. You guys are different. What makes you different? He says, you see everybody else, they're, they're living their lives, and they, their eyes are downcast, and they're, 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 they're not behaving the way that they ought to. What makes a difference? Why, why is it that you guys are laughing and talking and having a good time? Why is it that you look like you have something that I don't? You ever thought people may be looking at your life like that and asking that same question? Why is it, Andy, that you don't speak disparaging words? Why is it, Andy, that you don't talk bad about every bad thing that happens to you in life? Why is it, Andy, that you don't go out drinking with us on Friday nights? Why is it, Andy, that you're not going to speak disrespectfully of your wife? Why is it, Andy, that you're not going to forsake the assembling of yourselves together? Is church really that important? Why? Brothers and sisters, it's the holiness of God. It's who God wants me to be. And as I uphold Jesus, as I uphold Jesus in my life, and as he remains in my life, it's going to make a distinction between me and a person who doesn't have him. Surely you can see that we all ought to go back and we all ought to look again in our lives and examine ourselves and to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling and realize that there may be things that are going on in my life that are keeping me from shining my light the way that I ought to. But it is a beautiful thing that we still have a Savior who is concerned about the purity of our lives and purity of our hearts. It is a beautiful thing that our God has given us grace through that Savior to be able to have the time to make those changes and the grace to be able to say, even though it's you're struggling with this, my grace is covering this. Keep struggling, keep working, keep fighting against that sin. Keep struggling to remove that sin from your life just like hot potato. You don't want it. Keep it out. Keep filtering what goes into your mind and into your heart because the temple of God still needs to be holy. Which temple I am, which temple y'all of us are. Brothers and sisters, if you need help, if you need encouragement, if you need the strength of your brothers and sisters, that's part of why we're here this morning. Stirring up one another to love and good works. As we issue this invitation this morning, if you have something in your life that you're struggling with, don't hold that to yourself. Don't keep that saying that I've got this. I can control this. This sin is not that big a deal because it is. The Lord views it as a big deal and it may be the exact thing that's keeping you from living a life like you ought to. A life that's clean, holy, pure. But if it is that you need the prayers and encouragement of the church, if you need somebody to help you with those things, we're here for you. We want to encourage you. We want to strengthen you. But if it is that you're still outside of Christ, there is only one way to be right with God, and that is through Jesus Christ. Jesus would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me, John 14 and verse 6. The way to the Father is only through Jesus. The way to forgiveness of your sins is only through Jesus. The way to a right relationship with God, with God coming in and making your life, your heart, his temple, where God comes in, where it is that you become a part of the church, is only through Jesus Christ. 
Jesus says, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. Mark 16, verse 16. Have you done that this morning? Are you saved this morning? You can be. If you need to study about that, or if you're ready to obey the gospel, the Lord stands ready to receive you, and this invitation is for you as well. If you need to come forward.